Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. This episode has been brought to you by the Wine to Wine Business Forum 2022. This year will mark the ninth edition of the forum to be held on November 7th and 8th of 2022 in Verona, Italy. This year will be an exclusively in-person edition. The main theme of the event will be all-round wine communication. Tickets are on sale now, so for more information, please visit us at winetowine.net. Welcome to this special Italian wine podcast broadcast. This episode is a recording off Clubhouse, the popular drop-in audio chat. This Clubhouse session was taken from the Wine Business Club and Italian Wine Club. Listen in as wine lovers and experts alike engage in some great conversation on a range of topics in wine. If you enjoy listening, please consider donating through italianwinepodcast.com. Any amount helps cover equipment, production, and publication costs. And remember to subscribe and rate our show wherever you tune in. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Clubhouse Ambassadors Corner. Uh, my name is Joy Livingston. I'm standing in for Stevie Kim. She normally does these, but she's still she's getting back from Campania. So I'm doing this for this evening. And um, so, yeah, Clubhouse. We do this uh, every Thursday at 6 p.m. And uh, this is a great opportunity for ambassadors of the Italy International Academy to, and wine lovers, of course, to get to know their favorite producer and, um, you know, make contacts and basically ask the questions that they, they've always wanted to ask their favorite producer. Uh, we do replay this on the Italian Wine Podcast so this will be on there in the next couple of weeks or so. And uh, that's so that people who are not in the same time zone can catch it or for whatever reason. So it's it's actually really popular on the Italian Wine Podcast. So um, yeah, that's great. <laughs> so for today, we have Giovanni Pesquera Elia um, being interviewed by Matt pace and if i have butchered anybody's name i really apologize <laughs> matt are you there i certainly am it's quite hard to get my name wrong <laughs> it's good and i i detect a, a british accent where are you right now i'm in london uh, where it's raining very hard. ah okay i wish it would rain here it hasn't rained in in a long time so <laughs> so i will um i will go ahead and uh um give you a quick uh, introduction and then i'll 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 turn you over I'll let you do your thing, um, and, and you can go ahead and introduce Giovanni from the Paitin Winery. So, um, so you're the operations director of Enoteca da Luca, uh, independent group of three Italian restaurants and wine bars in central London. And uh, you're also a, a wine ambassador, and also ha you have your WSET 3, level 3. Is there anything else you would like to, to tell me about yourself before I, uh, before I hand you over? Well, that's my bio. That kind of pretty much covers it. You've got me in two sentences there. That's all good. <laughs> that's very, very British. Let's, very let's, get, on, let's, get, let's get, get on to the important person who's the, who's the genius winemaker. 
Fantastic. I love it. So, um, Giovanni, are you there? Uh, yes, I'm here. Ah, okay, perfect. Okay, so actually, you know, before I, I go, I just wanted to ask a couple things that Stevie always likes me to ask, um, which is, Matt, what uh, what are the learning objectives that we should expect from this interview? And how did you discover the wines of Pytine? Uh, sure. So learning objectives, I would say, um, I can answer both questions at the same time. So why, why Pytine and what are the learning objectives? You know, Barbaresco is famous for its varied soils and all the different sites. It's harder to understand than Barolo, where, you know, there's many, many, the villages and the subzones, relatively easy to get your head around. Whereas I would say Barbaresco is harder because there's so much more variety. Um, and that is one of Pytin's strengths, I think, and I hope to talk to Giovanni about this, is how they have pioneered the use of single vineyard and understanding what each different plot does and what kind of different Barbaresco that makes. So that's one of the reasons for wanting to interview Giovanni. How did I discover them? Uh, I think I first tasted Pytin wine, if I'm not wrong, at Nebbiolo Day, which is a fantastic event in London that happens, it's happened twice or three times, put on by the journalist Walter Speller. And so if you're ever in London, uh, if you're in the UK, you must go because it's an amazing, amazing event. Um, and then in April of this year, I went to Grandi Lange uh, in Torino, which is an event organized by the Consorzio di Tutela di Barolo and Barbaresco and Doriani. And, uh, you know, same thing. So big tasting, mostly Nebbiolo, but also uh, some Dolcetto and Barbera. And I met Luca, Giovanni's son, uh, at that event and tasted some of the 2019s. And we know which everyone is saying is going to be a pretty stellar vintage for Barbaresco and Barolo and was just super, super impressed. And then I happened to get invited to a lunch with Luca in London two months later. So, yeah, it's uh, I've just ordered myself a case of the uh, 2019 Sorry Paitin, which isn't even in London yet. So, yeah, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of Paitin wines. Awesome. That, that, that actually does sound really great. Um, if I'm ever in London, I know exactly where I'm going to go. So go ahead, you guys. I will come back at the end and um, we may have a couple questions or not. Uh, depends on the time. And um, until then, I will, I will uh, mute myself. Go ahead. Okay, perfect. Thank you very much. Giovanni, ciao. Come as die. Ciao, Matt. I'm fine, thanks. We just started the harvest uh, last week. Uh, oh, wow. uh, everything looks nice. Uh, we hope the, now the weather continue like like it's now it's cooling down at night. Uh, so and uh, uh, the grapes are looking they're very nice. So we crossing fingers for this uh, this vintage. Uh, and how have you? How much longer will you be picking for? Uh, so this uh, since this was a uh, warm summer, we are um, uh, starting. So just started with Arnaise and Dolcetto, but uh, we continue with Barbera and Nebbiolo. I think uh, at the end of the month, uh, everything will be done. Okay, mm -hmm. amazing. Um, so I wanted to kind of first of all, you know, 
put the estate into perspective, it's a very historic estate, isn't it? One of yeah. my team, one, one of the oldest. Tell us uh, a bit about the history, how long. I know there is, I think, different families have come together over the over the centuries. Tell us, tell us, please, about the, the history. Yes, a short um, short history. We um, we are in this, this location since 1796. The uh, the family purchased uh, the first part of the uh, this estate uh, just after the French Revolution, before Napoleon came. So in a couple of years, a couple of years later, Napoleon arrived in the area. We still have a document with the Napoleon stamp when we purchased the second uh, section of the winery, and. Uh, uh, we had uh, for 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 many years uh, not only vineyards uh, like it was, it was a classic uh, classic farm with uh, also some hazelnuts, uh, some peaches, uh, and uh, also some some animals. Uh, and, uh, we we kept the, the cows and oxes until uh, 1970 to, to work in the, in the vineyard before the first tractor. First tractor came uh, in 1970. I remember I'm, I'm, I was born in 1959, so. I remember my parents uh, working with the, with the animals. With, uh, it was a really tough time. Um, then, <clears throat> so then the family they continue uh, making making wine, other things, and then uh, my great grandfather in the uh, 1890s, uh, Elia Giuseppe, decided to focus mostly in in one making, and he started to make the, the first labels. We have no information about labels before before him. Um, then uh, some uh, he started to export also to London first because his cousin uh, uh, had a restaurant in London in the early uh, uh, 20th century before World War One. Um, really? Yeah. Oh, funny. Mm-hmm. Okay, he, that's he, he moved there as a, to be a waiter. Then he married the owner of the the, the restaurant. So and. Uh, yeah, they they opened also later the family in another restaurant in New York. Uh, my great grandfather started to export Barbaresco to New York, probably one of the first of the, the that period. Um, then uh, continue after World Two, uh, after World One. During World War Two was a complex situation because my great grandfather and my grandfather both died. So during the war was really complex. Uh, my father took. Uh, uh, they started to work uh, with the um, with the family um, in uh, 1948, uh, and and restarted the, the the business. Not restart, but continued improved a little bit. The business was down for for like ten years. Um, I came uh, about forty years ago, um, around forty years ago, working with my father. I also have a younger brother, Silvano, which is. Uh, um, uh, also, analogies like me, but it's mostly the winemaker now. We are sharing the, the, the different uh, uh, things, uh, and, and it's mostly him in in the um, in the cellar. Um, so, then, sorry, so you, you must have been about twenty then when you started working in the winery. Is that right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And but I, I started to work to to participate with the fermentation in a, a very difficult years in the early seventies when. Uh, the weather was not uh, cooperating, so I remember 72, 73, tragic, then okay, 74, but uh, other years, uh, 70 was very complex. So it was a time when a lot of people <coughs> were ch- thinking to change business and not continue to make wine. Then fortunately, the weather uh, became an, uh, m- much better for us. So, 
and um, so and Luca. Interesting to me. It's interesting to me listening to winemakers talk about vintages. You're talking about a vintage 52 years ago, as if it was yesterday. (laughs) You still. (laughs) The pain, <laughs> the pain of 1970. Yeah, the negative things are probably easier to remember. So I don't know. Um, but so, and Luca, he, he, uh, he joined us in, uh, in 2016. He was lucky because he started with a, a great vintage. And so, um, uh, our history, uh, so we are more than uh, 2,000, uh, 200 years in, in uh, so making wine, these things, but. Uh, the the uh, history has taught us that the results uh, must be achieved slowly. So we have to make a, a bigger force and don't, mm, you have to wait, uh, wait. And it's important to have a great family spirit and family culture uh, to continue. And but I we think the most important thing is the to have a vision. The family has a vision. Have, our family has managed over time to transmit the same vision and dedication. Through the generation, it's still our our engine today. Until the the new generation has the reception, obviously. Um, but this yeah, is, tell um, me. Um, so t- yeah, tell me a bit about how that vision works, because one of the things that strikes me is you you have you make you know relatively of quite a few wines. Mm-hmm. Tell tell me kind of what's the tell the tell the listeners, uh, you know what what is that philosophy. Yeah, it was um, uh, believing in, in the terroir, in the, what we, we were doing. A lot of uh, farmers were just, uh, even our business, just um, cultivate the, the vineyards and other things so just to survive and not to make something, uh, to uh, to have a, a real project. Uh, um, and that my also my ancestor, my grand-grandfather, they, they had a project, a real project about, to do something special uh, related to the um, to the terroir, so it's important to to trust uh, in the territory, and a lot of people didn't in the past. Uh, so, which uh, this is, was the, the advantage probably we had. We we always we remain very small. We never had uh, big production, but uh, the, the idea was always there to to make something to create something. Um, how many hectares do you have? Actually, we have around 20 hectares. Okay, right. Well, well, well. Which um, is uh, well, it's not too much, but it's, it's, uh, it's a lot of work. Sure. Um, when, I mean, how did your great-grandfather, you know, understand, how did he, do you think he came to understand the terroir differences? Because I, I imagine that a lot of our understanding is quite modern about mm-hmm. soil types and the influence and, and that kind of thing. But how mm-hmm. do you know how he came to kind of that view of terroir? Uh, he, he, uh, he started to travel. Uh, he, he was a lawyer, was not a, a farmer, but uh, he, especially when he, he, moved, uh, he went to visit uh, his cousin in London, he realized that uh, was not, uh, was possible to make something, something different, something, something better. And and the potential of, of the of the he started to understand a little bit the potential of the region probably not hundred percent but I think that uh, that uh, trip uh, going through France uh, going up to to London it, it was uh, the the um, the time when he realized it was uh, possible to do something something more important. 
and did he did he go to I any mean, there's a, a few quite a few Piemontese winemakers who went to Burgundy and kind of opened their eyes a bit is that what happened to him do you think was there a no, Burgundy no I, I think he didn't visit the the the, the French wine region Bourgogne but he realized it was an interesting market for for wine in bottles not only in in big in Demijon and that we, like it was the market at that time also in in the region. Got it. I see. Um, and then l- talking about your, the wines that you make, you know, you have an Arnais, a Fraser, Dolcetto. Uh-huh. The, the ones that I'm particularly interested in today are the um, the Nebbiolo based wines. So mm-hmm. you've got. Um, Tell, tell us what the what the wines are that you make, please. T- t- tell us about them. So about all, all the wines we are making, uh, or the Nebbiolos? Just, uh, sorry, just the Nebbiolos, please. Nebbiolos, okay. Well, we have uh, Nebbiolos mostly planted in Neve, here where we uh, in Saraboella. Then uh, the recent acquisition, uh, Basarino and Fazet. Plus in, in Alba, uh, we have uh, where I live in a property in Alba where we make Nebbiolo d'Alba and Lange Nebbiolo. Uh, our focus obviously is mostly mostly barbaresco uh, as you know we we work for a long time more than 100 years only in Saraboella, with a single single vineyard um, and um, more more recently uh, after luca came on board we uh, we acquired first bazarin and then then fazet but it's very recent 18 2018 uh, um, and um, but we were able since uh, we work uh, with uh, uh, one vineyard, uh, uh, also Raboella. It's, it's a big vineyard, but uh, with some difference. But you know, it's uh, same hill. Uh, the, the difference is not not very big. Uh, we learn how to uh, diversify, so to recognize the small difference in 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 so, uh, the, the our. Our Saraboella, so the Soripaitin is the, the central part, the oldest uh, property, which always gave us uh, much more, uh, I mean, quality, so much, uh, so more important wine uh, with big, bigger aging potential. And the Saraboella are different plots around, also we purchased later in the last eight years. So. Um, so with uh, uh, this, um, so working with the same, more or less the same soil, it was um, was interesting to uh, approach other other area like like Bazarina for that, which are uh, special Bazarina is not far from here, but it's uh, very different. Uh, very distant soil. Uh, Fazet is some way similar to here, but you know it is uh, the question of microclimate here, not only in the soil. We could, we could talk about terroir normally in general. What are so t- tell us what's the the soils you've got in Cerebuela and the soils that you've got in Bazarin? What are they? Mm-hmm. So Bazarin, uh, you know, in this um, this area, the hills were originated by the the erosion in millions of years um, when uh, after the when the, the the soil came up from from the ocean. Uh, and uh, uh, you can find uh, much uh, um, closer to, to the river, to the Tanaro River, more loamy soil with the, we call a limo. Uh, and then uh, moving away from uh, the soil, more clay, and then more sand where we are 
uh, much uh, uh, away from from uh, from the um, uh, the, the the river. In case of Bazarin, Bazarin is much more sandy, uh, much more sandy soil. As uh, in our vineyards, uh, faces mostly south, but as a uh, big, uh, large valley in front, so it never gets too hot. And uh, but the soil is much more sandy than Sarabuela and also Fazet. Fazet and uh, Fazet is next to Azili, so very similar soil, but it's also very similar to uh, the Sarabuela. But the situation is different because the the the, the climate is mitigated by the um, uh, the river, uh, and uh, has less variation of temperature. Sarabuela uh, has. Uh, uh, gets uh, warm and gets cool much faster because it's in fr uh, we can get a lot of wind from uh, from the ocean in in, uh, in Sarabuela. So even the soil are similar with the, the effects are so the results are quite uh, quite different. So no, so I remember being taught that a high diurnal range will give you more uh, perfume in the wine. Hi. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Sorry, is that fair to say in Sarabuela? Uh, sorry, I, I did, uh, say it again. It, when you have a high temperature range between day and night, mm -hmm. that yeah. might give you a more perfumed, more aromatic wine. Uh, yes, is, in general, yes. So Sarabuela, we have this situation in general, but also even um, Bazarin, which is not uh, it is not a, such a big, big well, uh, temperature di difference. It's a uh, as um, nice, uh, nice flavors, but a little less, uh, less structure. Yeah, and that will be the sand as well. This, you get less structure. Nebbiolo mm -hmm. acquires less structure when it's on sand compared with, to when it's on yeah. Clay. Normally, with more sandy soil, uh, so especially in in Alba, we have a, a new vineyard planted at the top of the hill, which is very sandy. And so this is lighter. We also mix uh, some um, uh, lampia and uh, and rosé. Uh, so it's uh, it's very interesting. With uh, it's a lot of sand, but are the sand uh, called sabbia di diano? So the sand we you can find in Castiglione Falletto to the part of the first part of Monforte. And uh, but normally sands gives, especially in Roero, the sand of Roero gives. Uh, uh, so less tannins, uh, makes less tannins in the wine and ni nice flavors. Uh, maybe the wine cannot live very, very long, especially the Royal Sand, but uh, uh, with the different flavors. And that's because the, the, um, the, the, the vine is getting less nutrients from the sand because the yes. sand drains, mm -hmm. the, 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 the vines aren't quite as strong as they would be if they were on clay. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Got it. Okay, great. Um, it, just talking about your new vineyards, you've got Facet, you mentioned, um, mm -hmm. uh, Bazarin. and Bazarin. Um, are you going to, are you intending to do single vineyards of those in the future, or are you going to just blend them into the, um, your, um, just... no, we, we, we don't make a, a blend, Barbaresco blend. Uh, so, yeah. so we have all, all single vineyards. So, Bazarin Fazet uh, will be uh, in the future. We also will have uh, in some years, we just uh, replanted the, the Starderi vineyard and uh, also another, but uh, it will be a question of some, some more years. Uh, but all single vineyard. We are uh, all the, from, uh, the grapes we have from the young vines uh, um, are going all in 
Langen and Viola. We don't make uh, just uh, Barbaresco without, uh, without not a single vineyard. Are you enjoying this podcast? Don't forget to visit our YouTube channel, Mama Jumbo Shrimp, for fascinating videos covering Stevie Kim and her travels across Italy and beyond, meeting winemakers, eating local food, and taking in the scenery. Now back to the show. How many years do you wait um, before, you know, how many, how old does the vine have to be before? Uh, normally, you normally 10 years. It, it depends on uh, uh, different soils, but normally the first 10 years we make uh, only, only Langan and Viola. Got it, got it, got it. Um, tell us, can you tell us a bit about what, what do you want your wines to do in, in the glass, in the bottle? How do you want your wines to be? How do you think your wines are? best appreciated you know what what style of because one of the reasons why i love nebbiolo so much is because of all the different expressions it has and the different types of nebbiolo you can get what what do you aim for what your quality that you want to achieve mm-hmm. so uh, now in, in the years certainly this idea changed a little bit especially talking about the the 90s when uh, we we were uh, flirting with the new new wave of the the the, uh, the new nebbiolos made with the short maceration and uh, this thing. So in the, that period, we uh, it was more. We, I can say my fault. Uh, I was looking for a little more extraction in in, in the wine back back in the nineties, so like thirty years ago. You, um, you bought yourself a rotary fermenter, I, I believe. Yes. Uh-huh, yeah. We purchased yeah. a rotary fermenter in uh, '97, uh, and, and we used for uh, uh, like 13 years, 12 years. Um, uh, the idea was uh, to, to have more extraction, but we realized in a short time that with the ferment, the short ferment maceration and the high temperature and uh, and the rotation, we had the much stronger tannic extraction, especially in hot vintages. In hot vintages, uh, the, the wine became, we supposed to have uh, wine easier to drink, but was not because we have more extraction. We, we never made uh, the super new uh, vinification as some, especially in Barolo area, some producer made with like four days of maceration with Neviolo and then uh, with a 35 Celsius or the fermentation. So in this case, you, you cannot get uh, a lot of tannins, but the, the wine was, I mean, a little too soft. Mm, uh, in uh, after the, the three years, uh, we started to make a little longer maceration in rotary fermenters and then uh, with a lower temperature. But um, the the tannic extraction, spe- again, especially in the hot, warm vintages, was was still still quite high. Uh, we changed. Uh, we decide not to use anymore the rotary fermenters. So also we introduce some small French barrels, like 500 liters for also for Barbaresco, just a small percent uh, in like uh, 99, 2000, 2001. Uh, in 2010, we started to cooperate uh, with uh, the uh, winemaker called Dante Scalione. Um, Dante Scalione was a classmate when I, I made the wine uh, wine school. He was the, the for many years uh, the Bruno Giacosa winemaker, and he, he suggested us to 
not to use anymore the rotary fermenters, even with the new system with long maceration, cool temperature. And uh, uh, so we have, from 2010, we have the new a little change, so back to the, the, the past. Uh, now the focus is, so in the glass to have a very, very elegant wine with uh, nice flavors. Uh, then, you know, Nebbiolo is not, um, is a wine that can change in six months. Uh, sometimes it's not good as it was before, then it becomes better, you know, it's up and down, some, like some Pinot Noirs or some others. Uh, so what we, we want to have, the focus is mostly the elegance of the wine. Uh, so we, we don't care anymore about uh, the extractions uh, and also the color. With the long maceration, we we are losing some color, but the color is more stable and the elegance is much better than before. Uh, so with the, our maceration now is long, like four weeks uh, for, for the Reserva, sometimes it's even eight weeks uh, very, with the submerged cap. Uh, like my my father did in in the top vintages in the past, so we what we want to have and also especially Luca, Luca is a fanatic, is a Bourgogne fanatic, and so he likes. <laughs> okay. So he's easy to be a Bourgogne fanatic, but um, he likes the, the, the they have real elegance in the, in the wine. So the. To you, the secret of making an elegant Nebbiolo is having the, what would you say is the top uh, factor for determining the elegance? Is, is it's the, a, right, the, the medium, the, kind of that medium four-week uh, maceration, you would say? Yeah, or? yeah, the maceration, it helps, but uh, yeah, the first, uh, before the, the, the vinification, you have to have the, the right uh, terroir. You, you must be in the, the good condition with microclimates and uh, and uh, and soil. Otherwise, uh, you can um, you can make all the efforts, and uh, it's hard hard to make it. Um, then, so, so the longer maceration helps uh, to to reduce the quantity of tannins because the harsh tannins are going normally are going to to reduce in the longer maceration, and uh, more extraction from from the skins. So this situation, you know, you know, we are lucky in the last uh, like um, like twenty five years because uh, the skin is in very good condition. It, going back to the, the the terrible years when I started, when we had problems with uh, thin skin uh, attacked by botrytis. Uh, in this case, it's uh, it's impossible to think about long maceration. Uh, it's uh, extremely important to have the perfect skin, like like most of the cases, to make uh, to make the long maceration. And uh, it's possible to get uh, uh, more elegance, uh, but always it's important to have the right uh, right terroir and also the right uh, uh, clone, the right variety. So we we have a blend. Uh, we we have uh, rosé in every vineyard. Uh, different uh, percent. Uh, rosé is uh, the variety gives much more flavors and much more elegance to the wines. Unfortunately, doesn't have a lot of structure. Making hundred percent rosé, the wines will be too too thin, and uh, maybe doesn't age very long. Uh, but uh, rosé is very very important to have uh, the. the the real elegance in the in, in Nebbiolo. We, I don't know if you know a producer called Orlando Abrigo, but he makes oh, yes. the wine. Yes, mm-hmm. 
I've just I've just listed his CN one eleven or Cento Undici. Cento Undici, yes, yes. Which is <laughs> something for the nerds in the audience. This is yeah. a wine that's named after the clone of Nebbiolo Rosé. Yeah. So, so you we, can go and order some CN one eleven yourself and make your mm-hmm. own. We just planted two new vineyards this year, and one is a fifty percent of. Uh, uh, one one one, and in, in Roero, we play, uh, in, where we make the Arnais, uh, we replanted the vineyard 100% with one 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 cento undici. Um, I think technically it's now, if you ask some scientists, they would say it's actually a different variety. It's not Nebbiolo; it's a different grape called Nebbiolo Rosé. Um, I don't suppose that makes a difference to you because you're growing it. But uh, I've I've read that it's seen it's seen as thought to be a different variety. It's um, uh, so you know the three varieties Lampia, Micheta, and Rosé. Mm, Lampia and Micheta are very similar, so different, uh, little bit different vegetation, uh, and uh, uh, also the the grapes. It's a uh, it's different shape. Rosé is very different because as very the leaves are different, and also when it's ripe. Uh, uh, it looks like Pinot Gris. It doesn't doesn't look ripe. You have to turn around the the the, the fruit to understand if it's ripe or not. Especially the people don't know about rosé. I remember sometime in the past when we had some pickers uh, were not specialized about the miolo. They d- didn't pick. They left the rosé in, in the vineyard because they didn't know it was was ripe. Wow, uh, funny. Yeah, it's uh, it's strange. It's the vegetation you can easily recognize the rosé even before is uh, change the color. is is quite a little different. But now we have a lot of selection about also about lampia and uh, and miquet uh, to choose uh, with more flavors, a little more color, uh, some more tannic. It's uh, I think is always important to mix. Uh, uh, different clones. In the case of uh, the, the, this one in Roero, we, we decide to plant only this variety because we want to make uh, this uh, so 100% Cento Undici from, from Roero. But it takes another three, three, four years before to What would you say, just you, you've talked about uh, Nebbiolo Rosé, but Lampia and Miquette, uh, mm. if I remember rightly, Lampia is thought to be more high quality. Have I got that right? So Lampia has normally the uh, bigger bigger bunch. Uh, it's uh, the fruit is a little bigger, and um, and Miquette is much uh, much smaller with thicker skin. In general, the classic old uh, uh, Miquette, uh, much more tannic. So to make an hundred percent Miquette is not really drinkable Nebbiolo because it will be tough, very tannic, much little more color. Uh, a lot of concentration, but not uh, uh, not the best. Uh, we uh, now there are some uh, uh, clones from Lampia. They're they're very nice. Uh, they also the problem with Miquette was uh, the uh, inconsistency of the production. Uh, some uh, years was uh, making uh, made normal production, and next year only twenty five percent. It was uh, some variety, but not not reliable. So very complex. Got it, got it, got it. Um, uh, talking about um, you know your your sites, uh, I notice you've got uh, you know you've got this word sorry uh, mm-hmm. on yep. uh, you know in the, the name of your wines, which is something that I just I mm-hmm. recently learned has a very it's a Piemontese dialect. Word, yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's and a it from... means, 
it's the it's the sunny spot. Is that right? Yeah, it's the sunniest part. So normally uh, south to west and and normally steep. When uh, even when the exposure is uh, is, uh, is a good exposure, but is not steep, is not considered sorry. Must be steep and uh, so uh, south uh, south to west. The um, this exposure, which is much warmer than for and steep, is normally poor soil. Poor soil is much better than uh, than the rich soil. Nebbiolo doesn't like rich soil. So, like many other great varieties, to make interesting wine, Nebbiolo is a pretty vigorous plant. If we choose a, a soil with a lot of nitrogen, like eastern exposure or sometimes the northern exposure, it's not much the the quantity of sun that can get the plant, especially now with now it's warmer. But as too much vegetation, and normally this soil, especially in the northern exposure, also too much humidity. Maybe it was good this year in 2003, 2005, or 17. But in general, it's um, it's negative because the plants uh, give uh, make too much vegetation and doesn't focus in uh, in uh, on the fruits. And so, so sorry, we uh, my father introduced on the label put sorry uh, pitin back in the 70s. Uh, that was after a suggestion of an important journalist of the, the, that period um, called Luigi Veronelli. Yes, this, it was this the man. First. I, now, there's, I've met a couple of winemakers who attribute their success to mm-hmm. Veronelli. I was in um, Trentino in April at, uh, do you know, Poiere Sandri? Ah, Poiere Sandri, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, and it's... It, his visit and his write-up in 1973 was mm-hmm. to Poyer was the turning point. For uh, no, no, he was uh, was an important person. He was the first to introduce uh, wine and food in television in the 70s. Before no, nobody else uh, did. Even you know, we are <laughs> food. Food, uh, wine is very important in Italy, but we we never had before in television seriously. So no, before we had some, but was not uh, was just uh, for jokes. Uh, he was a real professional, uh, Luigi, and we everybody we called Gino, um, and um, was a very good, great journalist. Uh, Sometimes even hard to understand from Italians. I was writing in Italian, but very sophisticated words, uh, and uh, but was was fantastic, Gino. And uh, when uh, when he was here. Back in, back in the seventies, suggested my um, my father to put on on the label the the, the name of the vineyard, which is the sorry Paitin is the the old name of, is the nickname of the fam uh, the family is not our uh, last name. And Bricco, the other word we use, is related to the top, the highest point uh, of uh, of the of the area. Yeah, yeah the, we are in Bricco, Bricco di yeah, Bricco, you see quite a lot throughout mm, yeah. the top of the hill, right? Whereas Sori yeah, exactly. is. I also Sorry. read that Sori is the spot that where the snow melts first. Yeah, the first, uh, yes. Normally, yes. Right. Yeah. Now the snow is uh, not much, it's melted, melting very, very fast everywhere. So if we don't have much anymore. Yeah. But normally, is the where, where the, the snow melts first uh, is a. Uh, um, is a good sign. Yeah, got it, got it. Um, one thing that uh, you mentioned 
in you know I read in your biography was um, that about when you went to America, mm-hmm. uh, and because it's it's noticeable like looking online how much uh, you know how many American importers write about your wines or how much coverage you get in America. Mm-hmm. Um, I know there's lots of Italians and and in Italy themselves are yeah. always fascinated by you know Italian winemakers being successful in america how how would you say you've it seems to me you're successful in america how how have you done it you know how does it work for you yeah so uh, the, the adventure in the united states uh, started in the late uh, um, 70s we uh, we met uh, one um, uh, one agent at that time called uh, thomas abruzzini uh, this guy um, he was a visionary man. He was uh, the, the vice president of Banffy Group, uh, so the, the big uh, com- American company. But he was mostly in charge of uh, the buying Bordeaux en primeur. So he was going to the different chateaux. He was, he was a super expert of Bordeaux, especially also in Bourgogne, but especially in Bordeaux. But, and he, he, since uh, the... The parents were Italians. Uh, he, um, uh, he didn't understand why the Italian wines, uh, with the big, uh, uh, big possibility, uh, didn't have a, a lot of success in the United States. Um, and he started. He um, decided to open his own business uh, as an agent. Uh, but before he traveled through Italy uh, for a couple of years, uh, just. Uh, uh, Moving in different uh, regions and tasting the wines uh, and uh, making a lot of notes to understand about the, the, the Italian territory. So we we met this guy uh, in the late seventies. Um, in uh, uh, he came uh, one day at the winery. He was um, trying to put together some uh, uh, producers uh, to have the same label everyone with the, his own wine and depend with the name but uh, to uh, to have one label to have to make a, a promotion easy easy the promotion of the, the small producer but it didn't work um, so um, when we started to ship something to the states uh, and uh, my, my first trip to the u.s was in 1984 and i realized uh the the, the how weak was the presence of the, the Italian the Italian wines in the United States uh, was also probably also related to the, the lousy quality of mo- most of the Italian restaurants at that time <laughs> and uh, a lot a lot of ba- bad wine from the big big wineries uh, so, um, and then it was a, for us it was a, a big change because we started to uh, Make uh, some uh, so selling some markets, and then he opened in different markets. Then we we continue uh, by ourselves because he changed a little bit of the strategy, uh, and then we uh, started to work with Marco De Grazia in the nineties. Um, Mark was uh, another visionary guy. He started in the eighties, so to it was very important for the Piemonte. Piemonte. Um, wines during Marco de Grazia, we enlarged the distribution. Now, even we are very small, we have 21 distributors in the U- in the US, so uh, they're covering like 30 more than 30 states. Uh, so, oh it's even God, e- that must be, oh 
don't even know. too much. Yeah. <laughs> and this is and it is still uh, is important for uh, for us. US it's uh, is our main market. The second market is uh, UK. Great, good. I'm glad to hear that. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, in yeah. fact, I think your son Luca has uh, just managed to join. He was, I believe, he was Luca was traveling, but now mm-hmm. he's here. Hey, Luca. Hi, hi, everyone. Ah, hi, Thing is, we're talking about kind of international and you know new markets and all the rest of it. Um, maybe we could t- talk to you now a bit about uh, the future for Python. Okay, great. Can be a quite can be quite a long question, a long answer, speaking about (laughs) the future. But um, I would say that um, if I need to speak about the future, probably the most uh, urgent uh, thing is uh, is how we need to tackle the climate um, to preserve the quality we always had in our wines, and so this is for me the most urgent part. of uh, of our objective um as a consequence this year has been quite a great testing uh, year for uh, we will see in uh, after the fermentation are finished if our uh, efforts has been uh, worth uh, i think that we try to approach uh, we haven't removed uh, for example almost any leaves from uh, from all the gra- from all the plants to avoid any wound and uh, um, evaporation of water so this was a way to keep the plant uh, preserving all the water they had uh, we manage uh, the canopy in a different way uh, without uh, taking out some branches that normally were preventing the humidity to move away from the plant we um, moved the soil uh, we fermented the soil to avoid the soil evaporation and then many other things. We also spray a uh, kind of um, uh, powder mixed mix, uh, with water to reflect 10-15% of the radiation of the sun. So those are some, exp- some of many other experiments with fungus uh, and um, that we are exper- an algae that we are experimenting in the vineyards to preserve the elegance and the class that always uh, distinguish Barbaresco. And so I think this is the most uh, challenging and uh, Funnier part of uh, of our activity today. Tell me about tell me about the spray. You're not talking about copper sulfate. You're talking about a spray that just is just to reflect sunlight. See, essentially, it's just a soil. It's a powder of soil, uh, mineral powder uh, that was used in the past for uh, constructions too. Um, it essentially is very, very white and uh, it goes on the plant. You spray it uh, even once, it's, it's, it's enough if you have like a heat wave coming. And uh, it does a bit of reflection. Uh, uh, normally it is considered 10-15%. It is just water and soil, nothing uh, after uh, three, four rains probably we will be washed away. Uh, but this is a good way to reduce the amount of radiation, limit, limiting the photosynthesis. It's also uh, prolonging a little bit uh, um, the ripening of the, of the fruits. Okay. And do you think, you, you, so your approach to kind of to combat climate change, is it going to be focused on this kind of canopy management um, you know that and, and the spray that's the kind of the headline what what else might you do or 
how else are you thinking about, you know, how to respond to future temperature increases? But for sure, um, so another way that takes would take a little bit more longer would be like selection maybe of newer clones that are able to tackle better the, um, the climate. We already did uh, since uh, um, I think my family always had quite attention to for the rootstock, and uh, when I joined the winery, we also had like a little bit more um, attention uh, on on the rootstock selection. So essentially, we are able now to have. Uh, Rootstocks, um, they are kind of pastry based, so very resistant to dry weather. And, uh, and so those are all elements, uh, and also a lot of research will be needed from uh, some more complex uh, institutes for, for better Nebbiolo also for the future. But uh, this is something that is outside of our potential, and uh, we rely on, uh, on, on uh, the community. So we try to stimulate the community, and we hope... Uh, that as a community of Barbaresco and Barolo, we will be able to stimulate some research from our local institutions. Do you work with the University at Torino, or who do you work with for your kind of technical advice, or do you talk to everyone? Yes, for sure, there is like a close connection with the University of Torino. Uh, some professor of uh, the University of Torino has a branch in Alba, so it's very easy to communicate. Um, and then uh, most of the research on the clones is also done by the Rauschedo company, who is the one that makes most of the small plants for uh, the North Italian viticulture. Oh yeah, I think I've, I, I think that yes, I think I've seen them, and they'll sell you a clone. Um, what? Um, and then talking about uh, outside of climate change, kind of new markets. Where else do you see? The, uh, what 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 markets are embracing uh, uh, Barbaresco Nebbiolo internationally? So internationally, we are seeing uh, uh, much more demand also from the Asian market. In J- Japan has always been a quite established market, and we work with Japan. I think uh, um, since I was uh, a kid, I always heard about shipping wine to Japan, and my father can confirm that. Uh, but um, now we have like many more workers from uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, uh, mainland China, um, many different areas that are asking for for um, having the opportunity to taste the wine and to see and to check also the reaction from the market. And the few reactions we had uh, were extremely great. Uh, and market now is a little bit more... Uh, um, it came now to be solid is the northern European market that maybe uh, 10, 15 years ago was almost non-existing and instead became very important for, for the Nebbiola area. Also because it was very easy to travel to our area, so we had like a very strong influx of, uh, of uh, northern European um, people coming and visiting, they loved the area and so forth. It was easy then to, to buy and get passionate with the wine. Yeah, amazing. Cool. Um, uh, probably final question. Uh, you mentioned that you, um, uh, you know, you you work uh, in the community in Barbaresco. Who are the other producers in Barolo, Barbaresco, and perhaps Barolo as well? Who else do you admire? Do you kind of um, compare notes with? Who else are you kind of? Uh, hero producers, your neighbours. 
piece of hero producers so we we have uh, we have a many to admire i think that each one has uh, uh, works with um i i admire people that are able to uh, make out of their soil one very unique expression. In Barbaresco, I would say that I'm cooperating very well with, um, for example, Riccardo Sobrino from Cascina delle Rose, Luisa Rocca from Bruno Rocca, Ludovica from Marchese di Gresi. Uh, those are friends in which we often meet uh, the four of us, plus some other, um, Gabriele Cortese from uh, Gabriele Occhetti from Giuseppe Cortese. Are many people that essentially we we often find each other together. We discuss, we exchange some information, uh, and we also create like a little commun political community, let's say, to um, show the power of the small farmers and to have like more um, also representation in um, when we're speaking with bigger institution or political, um, would say, authorities, uh, having a voice of the farmer that has been uh, much more influential in the, in the decision. Yes, of course. Yes, if I think about some of those other producers you mentioned, they, I suppose there's a, a common theme would be uh, elegance. You know, uh, I tasted the Cortese ones with Gabriele, early this year mm -hmm. and it's they have the same you know some of the same elegance and poise as your wines that's super interesting thank you very much um uh great um joy i think we might be drawing to an end unless you've got any more or Leica, if you're there if you've got any more questions Hello, can you hear me? Yes, I can. That was a great interview. And um, I'm wondering if we have any questions, but if anybody thinks of a question that they would like to ask at any point after this, they're always welcome to email me at info at italianwinepodcast.com and I can forward it to um, anybody who uh, who spoke today and Luca it's nice to meet you as well <laughs> um, my pleasure <laughs> um, all right so um, without further ado actually Laika do you know if there are and do we have any more clubhouses coming up before I before I sign out yes actually we have a lot of clubhouses ongoing like um we're still like preparing for it but then the, the confirmed one we have is going to be on september 12th on a monday next week at 6 p.m um it's going to be robert maggie uh interviewing marika maggie and they're not related <laughs> that's what he told me for sure um so she's from cantina la marquesa in puglia so see you next week then until next week and Thank you, Giovanni. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Luca. That was Thank really you. fun. I, I love to listen to that. That was great. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you very much. You're Thanks very welcome. If, uh, if people can get hold, anyone listening can get hold of the Barbaresco Sorry Piting 2019, it's, that's my big bet for something that's going to age in an incredible way. Uh, I feel like the case I've bought has been an amazing investment and I'm going to have to wait 10 years to find out just how amazing it is but uh, bravo giovanni and luca thank you so much for doing it yeah. thank thanks everybody it was a great pleasure thank thanks you. thanks everybody grazie grazie thank you everyone that's awesome thank you yeah. Ciao a tutti. <laughs>
We hope you enjoyed today's episode brought to you by the Wine to Wine Business Forum 2022. This year will mark the ninth edition of the forum to be held on November 7th and 8th, 2022 in Verona, Italy. Remember, tickets are on sale now. So for more information, please visit us at winetowine.net. I'm Joy Livingston, and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love, and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production, and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests, and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.